Acts chapter 20. Once a year at this time, I try to reserve this week, right after Christmas, people are still kind of traveling, folks are trying to settle in or uh, have relatives come in or go out or whatever. Um, I, I want to use this every year to introduce you to a character in church history that I think God may use to change your life and may even use to change the direction of your life. And I won't try this morning to make a case, a biblical case for having human heroes in your life, but if you'll download the transcript to this message, you'll have a full accounting of that. I did want to begin this morning talking about the life of Adniram Judson, the life and ministry and hardships and suffering and fruitfulness of the ministry of Adniram Judson, but I thought it would be best for us to start with an appropriate scripture, and so we turn to Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 24. And if you could read along with me, follow along with me as I read. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying, Bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear unto myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I want to emphasize, especially verse 24, I do not consider my life of any account is dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I can't think of a better text to summarize the life and ministry of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson is best known today as the pioneer of American foreign missions, being the first American to ever leave his country for the express purpose of reaching the lost in foreign lands with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, then he will be remembered by many today, and hopefully by you from here on, as the man who not only was the first American foreign missionary, but was the man who instigated the first ever Baptist missionary association to the U.S., in fact, he actually founded or instigated the first Congregationalist missionary effort from America. And then the Baptists got on board, and I'll share that with you in a little bit. He also translated the entire Bible into Burmese. Now, if you get a copy of the biography, probably the best-known biography called To the Golden Shore, which I have on order, and it will be in tomorrow and you can sign up for that in the library. But you will see what Burmese looks like. A daunting task to translate anything, let alone more than a thousand pages of Holy Scripture into the Burmese language. He compiled the first ever Burmese English dictionary. Did not finish it before his death, but it was a powerful tool to help other missionaries do their labor and teach people the language he brought hundreds, even thousands, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He inspired many men and women to become foreign missionaries themselves. Now, let me tell you what my purpose is in sharing his story with you. My purpose in speaking to you today about his life is to hopefully, by the grace of God, stir up within some of you, especially some of you young people, a holy ambition 
to throw your life into the cause of Christ among the unreached peoples of the world. Believe it or not, there are still many people groups with their own cultures and languages that still don't have the Word of God in their own language. And some of you hearing my voice today are gifted to give it to them. Don't make light of your English language studies. And young people, if you have the opportunity to study Greek and you're good at it, consider this. God may have given you that gift for a purpose. And that purpose may not be to teach in college or seminary. It may be to spend a life and perhaps even die in some foreign land translating the Bible so that the Word of God can go forth among a lost people to their eternal salvation. A lot has changed in the world in 150 years since Judson's death, but the same basic fundamental work of reaching the nations with not just the spoken but the written word of God is far, far from completion. Last I heard, there were still some 2,000 languages. 2,000 languages that did not yet have the word of God. This is what Adoniram Judson gave his life for. It was a life of great success, but only because it was a life of tremendous resolve and suffering. By way of biography, let me tell you that Adoniram Judson was born on Saturday, August 9, 1788, in Malden, Massachusetts, 12 years after the American Revolution. And he died aboard ship in the Indian Ocean on Friday, April 12, 1850, at the age of 62. As a missionary, his field of service was a little country called Burma. Now it's called Myanmar, and it was one of the places devastated by the tsunami a few years ago. In the north of the Indian Ocean, on the, just off the coast of the Bay of Bengal, Judson was an unusually bright child. He was a pastor's kid. And all pastor's kids are, as everyone knows, unusually bright children. <laughs> That's not in my notes. We'll stick with the notes. As he grew, young Adoniram read everything he could get his hands on. He was an amazing one uh, boy. But even before then, there's a story that everyone who read anything about Adoniram Judson knows. His father was often traveling on the weekends looking for a new pastorate um, or opportunities to preach. He had a difficult time holding down a job as a pastor because of some of his extreme views. But he was away one weekend, and when he came home, his wife welcomed him and fed him a meal, put him in his favorite chair, and said, Honey, I have a surprise for you. And he said, Well, let's see it. And so she called young Adniram into the room and pulled out his little blanket, which is still on display in a museum up in the northeast, and sat him down, and she opened up her old King James Bible, and put it in his hand, and he read for his daddy a whole chapter of the King James Bible. Adoniram was three years old. This was a bright young man. He did read everything he could get his hands on. He grew, and, and uh, his knowledge grew, and his ability to grasp concepts was incredible. I only wish I had time to tell you. There are a lot I'm leaving out here that's in the manuscript that you can get later. When he was at college, when he went to college, the examiners tested him to determine where he should begin his studies. They found that he was already so well-grounded in Latin, Greek, mathematics, geography, and astronomy that they decided there was no need for him to take the studies of the freshman year. So he started college as a sophomore. And get this, he was 16 years of age. It was here at college, as it is with many boys who leave home to go to school, that Adoniram really began to question his faith in God. While attending school, he became close friends with a young man by the name of Jacob Ames. Remember that name, Jacob Ames. No telling of the life of Adoniram Judson is complete without an an explanation of how it was influenced by young Jacob Ames. As Judson described him, Jacob Ames was an amiable, talented, witty, extremely agreeable in person and manners, 
but he was a confirmed deist. In other words, Jacob Ames was an outspoken religious unbeliever. In Judson's young mind, this made everything simple. You may not fully understand deism, but it basically said there is a personal God, but he doesn't have anything to do with us. There is no life after death. There is no supernatural. The world is just living as it lives. It's a top that's spinning, and it will wind down one day, and it'll be over. There's no heaven or hell. And when Judson grasped this, everything in life, became simple because he was an ambitious young man. Fame was the goal, ambition the spur, the sky was the limit. So he threw himself into a life of personal ambition and set out to become the valedictorian of his class, which he knew would make his father proud. His father recognized his giftedness and told Adoniram from the very beginning that he expected him to be a great man, even like Andrew Jackson, who was president of the country at the time. In fact, no sooner had he won the honor of valedictorian than he hurried to his room and he wrote a short note to his father. And the note was simply this, Father, I have got it. Signed, your affectionate son, A.J. He was 19 years old. His father knew exactly what he was talking about. And then having graduated college, he went home to begin living a lie. His father and mother had no idea that he had become a deist in college he took part in family worship. On Sundays, he attended church. No one, least of all his mother and father, suspected his true beliefs. Later that year, he decided he was going to leave home. He had started an academy for young people in his home. That lasted a year until his 20th birthday. On his 20th birthday, he closed it down, sent the children home, and announced to his parents that he was going to travel for a while and see something of the world. They were furious. They were mortified. And both mother and father entreated him not to go, but Adoniram persisted. They pressed further and further with more passion, but he persisted. Finally, his father asked why, if he did not enjoy teaching, would he not enter school to become a minister? This was more than Adoniram could take. A minister? Are you kidding? And then he furiously blurted out the truth that he no longer considered himself a Christian. He had become a convinced deist. The God of his father was not his God. He could not believe in the Bible, could not believe it was any, anything greater than the work of men, any more than, than was the Koran or the sacred writings of Buddha, great as its principles may have been. Even Jesus was certainly the Son of Man, but most certainly not the Son of God, except in the sense that all men are. Judson's father said, Himself to reason with the boy, but he proved no match for his son's ability at rhetoric. For every argument his father presented, Adoniram had two that were more powerful. There was nothing he could do. For six days, his mother wept and cried and pleaded for him to repent, and he would not. Finally, Adoniram took what little he had coming to him by way of inheritance, and he left. He went to New York where he had hope of becoming a writer for the theater. And within a few days, he attached himself to a band of traveling actors. He roamed with them for a few weeks, living, as he said later, a reckless, vagabond life, finding lodging where we could and bilking the landlord where we found opportunity. Eventually, this lifestyle took a toll on his conscience. And one night, while everyone else was unsuspecting, he snuck away. He traveled on his own until he came to an inn. He'd been gone now for five weeks, almost six. He traveled to where he came to an inn where he sought room for the night. It was nearly full. But the landlord said he had one room left, but that Adoniram probably wouldn't want it because it was partitioned against another room where there was a young man who was gravely ill. In fact, perhaps he was even dying. Well, Adoniram thought about it, and he decided it was better to sleep there than out in the cold. And so that evening, when Adoniram got into bed, he immediately began to hear sounds coming from the next room. He could hear the low groans and gasps and the sounds of footsteps coming and going as people were trying to take care of this young man who was gravely ill. This didn't bother him at first until he considered the fact that this man might be dying. 
And he began to think, I wonder if this man is prepared for death. And then he began to think, am I prepared for death? As a deist, death could not be viewed as a door to anything. Death was an exit. Death was the end. It was never thought of as a beginning. It was a door to an empty pit, to darkness darker than night, an extinction at best. Deism had no answers for what happens to a man after he dies. It's just over. And if that's true, then life is meaningless. Live and let live, do whatever you want. But he couldn't escape the horror of realizing the man next door was about to die. As the night wore on, Adoniram began to chide himself. For goodness sakes, I'm a deist. Why should I be upset about this meaningless man's life and death? What would Jacob Ames, that clear-headed, skeptical, talented wit of a friend, say if he were here? He would chide me for my foolish thinking. He imagined Ames' laughter, and he felt ashamed for his thoughts. He managed to go to sleep that night, but in the morning, as he prepared to leave, he went downstairs and found the host and paid for his rent for the evening. And he asked the host whether the young man in the room next door was any better. He's dead, said the host. Dead. And Nairam was taken back. All his fears from the evening before came rushing in on him. And so sputtering around, paying his bill, and making the few appropriate comments that are conventional in this kind of a case, he made his way to the door, and just before he left, he turned around, and he asked the man, By the way, do you have any idea who the man was? And the host said, Oh, yes. He was a young man from the college. His name was Jacob Ames. Jacob Ames. Can you imagine? Could it be? And Niram soon found himself on a road with one word in his mind. Lost! My dear friend, Jacob Ames is lost. He was finally and irrevocably lost. If Ames' views were true, then neither his life nor his death had any meaning at all. Then the coincidence of his dying on the other side of the wall from Adoniram in a remote country inn was a meaningless event, and that's all. But suppose Ames was mistaken. Suppose the scriptures were literally true and a personal God is real. In that case, Ames was lost in the most desperate of sense. Now he would be conscious of terror for his error. Even now he is facing the flames of God's judgment and it is too late for repentance. Any chance of remedy, of going back, of correcting, lost. Eternally lost. And now all was becoming clear for young Adoniram. That hell should open up that obscure in that obscure country and snatch his dear friend Jacob Ames his dear friend and guide, and the fact that death took him from the very next room where he resided in that unknown inn for the night, the only thing that Adoniram could conclude is this simply could not, simply could not be mere coincidence. God must have done this for a purpose. The sovereign God and personal God of the Bible must be real. More than that, He must have a purpose for my life. Otherwise, how do we explain this? Soon after this event, Judson, not knowing what to do, went home, told his parents what happened. They obviously were very elated. He was not a believer yet, but he was moving in that direction. In seeking counsel, he was advised to go to seminary. Get back to his studies. Pursue a knowledge of Scripture, which he did. And soon after this, 
Enrolling in seminary, it became clear that he had gotten radically saved. Radically born again. Now, I belabor this event in Judson's life because I believe there are more than one person, more than a few parents of wayward children hearing my voice right now, who have all but given up on their son or daughter, or attempted to give up on their son or daughter, who has left the faith. Oh, my friend, listen to me. Do not lose hope. Do not lose hope. You have no idea what the invisible hand of providence is arranging for your son or daughter. There is no unbelief so hardened that God cannot smash through it with a mere word from his mouth. Do not give up on your child. So long as your precious child has life in his body, there is hope that God might save him. There is no sin too deep, no defiance too violent, no rebellion too resolved, no unbelief too firm to resist the overwhelming force of the grace of God when he chooses to break that young person's heart and grant repentance and save to the uttermost. Don't ever lose hope. Keep praying. Keep serving. Keep living and speaking the truth. You have no way of knowing what God is up to in the life of that child. Just be faithful. Apply the means of grace to your own life first. And then every opportunity to the life of that one you love. And then trust that God is accomplishing all things according to the counsel of His own perfect and sovereign will for His great glory and for your eternal joy. This was Adoniram's young life. His young life, the death of his faith, and the birth of true spiritual life within him led to the second thing that I want to tell you about, and that is his holy ambition. Judson's holy ambition. The first thing Judson did after he became a follower of Christ was to banish forever those former dreams of becoming an orator, a poet, or a statesman. And he began to ask himself this question. How shall I order my future being as best to please God? How shall I order my future being as best to please God? And beloved, I would suggest to you that that's the most important question of every Christian's life. Every Christian's life. How can I please God? In 2 Corinthians 5.9, I know there are a number of you in this room, when I even mention that verse, the words are already running through your head. 2 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore, Paul says, I make it my ambition, whether at home or absent, in other words, whether I'm alive or dead, to be pleasing to the Lord. That's my ambition. That's why I do the crazy things I do. I'm not out to please me. I'm not out to make a name for myself. I'm out to please God with every breath I take. Beloved, this is the most important question for your life. And it was the one that Adoniram began wrestling with. It was while he attended seminary that he came across a printed copy of a sermon entitled, A Star in the East. It was about how the gospel had been taken maybe by the wise men or one of them, to India. It emphasized that the time was ripe to spread the gospel among the eastern peoples. He'd already heard about William Carey, who at this time was still alive and still working in India, and he had heard about Robert Morrison, who was translating the Bible in China, at great risk to his own life. But those were Englishmen. No American, so far as Adoniram knew, had ever thought of going outside of North America. And no organiza organization existed, even if someone would, did want to go out of North America to be a foreign missionary. In fact, he spent a significant time and got himself in significant trouble taking a boat over to London. Wish I had time to tell you that story, how he was kidnapped by the French and put in jail and God rescued him and eventually got him to the London Missionary Society and they said, yeah, we'll take you. And then he came home to America. You have to get the book. 
never been done before. It's never been done before. But in his mind, who cares if it's never been done before? Somebody has to be first. And he began thinking, why should not I be a foreign missionary to one of these remote parts of the world as yet unreached by the gospel? That's the question exactly. It's the question I want you to wrestle with in your heart this morning. Why should not I? Why should not I be a foreign missionary to one of these remote parts of the world? These yet unreached people with the gospel. He began reading every scrap of information he could find on the nations in the east. Finally, his heart settled on a little Buddhist country called Burma, which today is known as Myanmar. And this became his life's holy ambition, to reach Burma with the gospel and to give them their own copy of the Holy Scriptures. Now here I feel I must stop and ask, beloved, do you have a holy ambition? Do you have a holy ambition? Especially you young people. But all of us should wrestle with this question. Do I have a holy ambition? Have you set your heart on doing something to the glory of God that is bigger than yourself? Something that causes you to say no to a hundred other good things for the sake of that singular ambition? Are you just living? Or are you living to magnify the glory of God in some specific way? It doesn't matter if you're a plumber or an electrician or whether you build jets for Lockheed or whether you sweep floors for some little warehouse. What is it that God has given you to do? If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit within you. You've been gifted by him to do things for his glory. What about it? Do you have a holy ambition? Ed and Iram Judson believed that God had work for him to do. There's a reason for why he existed. And so he would go to Burma. He would preach the gospel and he would translate the Bible into Burmese so that the church in Burma would have the book of God. Now, when he began to tell his friends at the seminary about his plans, he immediately faced opposition. You understand that like William Carey and most of the famous missionaries, he was a Calvinist. And everyone around him was a Calvinist. And they, frankly, belittled his idea. But he didn't care. He looked for every opportunity to preach and to present his idea of going to Burma as the first American missionary. Finally, some influential people caught the vision, and in 1810, the first American missionary society was born. Adoniram and three other men from the seminary who caught on and got excited about this, were commissioned at the, as the first American foreign missionaries. This is a glorious moment. And I wish I could tell you more about that. It was complicated. And it was long. It was an arduous process. But it finally happened. On one day, when four of them stood before their peers, and these older saints, pastors, leaders of the Congregationalist Church movement, they stood before him, they had a document before them to sign their lives away, and all four of them stood to the front of the church, signed their name, and sat down. And the whole church, family, friends, everybody who knew them sat there and wept because they knew what was going to happen. These men would leave, and they had no intention of ever coming home. There was something almost as glorious that happened that very day. For you see, on this very day, Adoniram fell in love. <laughs> Her name was Anne Hasseltine, or Anne Hasseltine, I guess. But people usually called her Nancy. She was just the kind of wife Judson needed. She was smart, energetic. I know I just said something silly, but... She was just the kind of wife that Judson needed. She was smart. She was energetic. She was an excellent people person. Her friends said where Anne is, no one can be gloomy or unhappy. That's what he needed. And one month after meeting her, he formally made his feelings known to Nancy's elation. 
Soon afterwards, he sat down and he wrote a, fa- wrote a, a, a letter to her father asking for his daughter's hand. Now, what would you say if you were asking for this young lady's hand? I remember when I asked my wife's daddy if I could marry his daughter, and over the phone he said, which one? (laughs) And then he said, you know, one of them's already married. (laughs) Yeah, I knew that. And then he said, well, I suppose, all right, yeah, that's exciting. That's nothing compared to what uh, Ed and Iram uh, probably put this family through when they received this letter, okay? So here's the dad. He opens the mail, and here's this letter. It's a long letter. This is the end of it. And he says to Nancy's dad, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Are you feeling it? Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting with your daughter in the world of glory, with the crowd of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? I tell you, this man believed it. He believed He believed the gospel. I mean, it's significant when Paul says, I believe, therefore I preach. An awful lot of people standing behind the pulpits who are preaching it, but they don't really believe it. And Aaron believed it with all of his heart. To him, this kind of letter made perfect sense. That really was what she was headed for. And he didn't want to give her daddy any false And so perhaps not knowing how he should respond, he left the decision to Anne to make her own decision on the matter. To this, Anne wrote to her close friend, Lydia Kimball, saying, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I've about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, And go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. Now listen to me. You young men who hear my voice right now. When you meet a young lady who loves God this much. And is so committed to obeying his word. I tell you, marry her. And I don't care how she looks. I don't care what her talents may be. If she loves God like this, and she has a history of obedience to his word, and is willing to follow Christ wherever he may lead, you marry her. You just make sure you're worthy of it. Because you may not be. This is a rare jewel. This, young ladies, is worthy of your aspiration as a young woman of God. And so on Wednesday, February 5th, 1812, Adniram and Nancy were married. Soon afterwards, his friend and fellow missionary married Nancy's close friend, Harriet Atwood. It was 1812. 1812. The British were preparing to invade America in hopes of taking back the land they lost in the Revolutionary War. Time was of the essence. The blockade was coming. It was necessary to make a decision and board ship. It was discovered that there was a small boat the caravan that was due to set sail for India. And so passage was purchased for the late February departure at Naira Nancy. Samuel Newell, his friend, and Harriet boarded ship for India. And their suffering began almost immediately. I want to tell you about the perseverance of this man and those who were with him. 
There were others, and we haven't time for me to even tell you about them. There were two other couples and a couple of single men who took a different ship to the same location. They were wise. Their, their counselors were wise in sending them in two different ships in case one was lost, that the work would continue. After four months at sea, okay, imagine four months at sea. My parents now have been in living in a hotel since the fire in their house. They've been living in a hotel close to downtown for a month, and they're about to go stir crazy. Can you imagine four months, four months cooped up, and you can't leave, you can't get in the car and go to Target, you can't come to church, you're just stuck there in the boat for months. But when they arrived, they were promptly told that any thought of setting up a mission in Burma was crazy. When they had the opportunity to visit Sarampore and speak directly with William Carey, he encouraged them to put Burma out of their minds and set up their mission in some someplace else because Burma was too hostile. The Burmese government didn't want them. The East India Company was using any means possible to discourage missionary activity. The chief of police promptly told the captain of the caravan, their ship, that he wouldn't receive a, a, a port clearance for him to come to port until he gave security that he would take these missionaries home with him when he went. Judson and Newell were then formally told, almost arrested, but formally told that they would not be permitted to set up a mission in any British dominion or in the territory of any British ally. You cannot do missionary work here or anywhere else that is remotely attached to Britain. And to make matters worse, when they left Massachusetts, they were a group of Congregationalists who believed in infant baptism. But on the four-month journey, Adnaram studied the Scriptures and became convinced that infant baptism was unbiblical. Couldn't find it anywhere in the Bible. And so what does an impetuous man do, having just been sent by very sacrificial and influential people in Salem, Massachusetts, to be a Congregationalist? Missionary, the first ever from America. It's simple. He became a Baptist on the boat. His wife wasn't happy. She was a, she was a sparky woman. Uh, she told him, if you become a Baptist, you're doing it alone. And then she decided the best way to, to dissuade him from his intentions was to show him from Scripture that he was wrong, which she couldn't do. And so... Ironically, they actually went back to, when they were able to, went to William Carey's compound, and, and they were baptized there by William Carey's people, and they became Baptists. But this, this was a problem. This was a big problem. He was no longer, he no longer could associate with the board that sent him. And so his friends came to him and said, listen, I'm sorry about this, but we can't do ministry together. Because we disagree on a really important issue. And so they left him. They'd never be able to serve with him, so they boarded ship. And they set off for the Isle of France. Now, there was a lot of pressure on them to leave anyway. They were trying to figure out how they could leave without going back to America. And so they were looking for any place. And there was a whole adventure I wish I had time to tell you about. But they ran for their lives. They were on the run for a long time. And Niram and Nancy did their best to find their way to get into Burma, which was not a British territory. If they could just get in, then they would be okay. But eventually they had to flee to the island, Isle of France, where their friends went to regroup. They had by now been gone from home for seven months. It was now January. It took seven weeks to catch up to their beloved friends in the Isle of France. When they arrived, they immediately received stunning news. A boat pulled up to the ship, and they asked, what about... Harriet, and the word came back, Harriet's dead and at 19 years old, and her baby's dead too. She was pregnant. Their ship had been caught in a storm. Harriet was forced to give birth inside the ship. The chill of the rain, the waves crashing over the ship caused both mother and child to become ill. The baby caught pneumonia. Harriet caught tuberculosis. Both were buried on the island. End of story. They hadn't even made it to their place of service yet. And so her husband, Newell, decided it would be best for them to meet up with the other Congregationalists on a different island, so he left. And this left Nancy and Adoniram alone in a hostile world, 
with no one but the Lord to rely on. They looked for a ship to take them somewhere, anywhere, because they knew the authorities were going to find them in just a matter of days. He went down to port and began looking around, and there was only one boat. Guess where it was going? Burma. Everyone told them, don't take it. Don't take it. He didn't care. They got on board, and they went to Burma. When they arrived in Rangoon, they discovered William Carey's son, Felix, was ministering there, having taken a Burmese wife. Felix was elated to have the Judsons join them in the mission and had them move into his own house. This was a tremendous providence of God. They actually had a place to live when they got there, and it was a nice place. To have a house and Baptist companions who already knew the language and could help them get settled into the land and help them learn the basics of the, of the language, but it was not meant to last. Eventually, just a few months into their relationship, Felix took a job with the government and gave up missionary work. He took his wife and left, leaving Ed, Nairam, and Nancy alone in Rangoon to do what they could by themselves. For a whole year, they immersed themselves in the process of learning the culture and language. They hired a tutor and studied up to 12 hours a day. Before long, they began to acquire a good understanding of the language, but they still were alone and making no tangible progress in reaching the lost. How could they? They couldn't speak to them. In the meantime, unbeknownst to Judson, the Baptists back in America had gotten word about how Adoniram had become one of them. And Baptist missionary societies began popping up all over the place. Because one of his friends who left, there there were some other people involved in here that I don't have time to tell you about. But one of them, because of liver trouble, had to get back on the boat and go back to America. He took the stories with him. And unbeknownst to Adoniram, he was becoming a hero already. The diary and the story about Harriet's life and death. There's no way to explain this except the power of the Holy Spirit. Something about that inspired in the heart of the young people that they wanted to do this. They wanted to do what Adoniram was doing. If it cost them their life. And so Baptist missionary societies were popping up all over the place. Funds began coming in. And he got word that there was a couple on their way to help. And so it wasn't long before a ship arrived with news that help was on the way. In fact, a man by the name of George Hugh, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, who was a printer, was on his way to Burma to join him. Two years later, Adoniram had written his first gospel tract in Burmese and had a thousand copies printed for distribution. The tract resulted in a few people coming to the door to ask questions about this new teaching, but there were no converts. In fact, Hugh doubted whether it would ever be possible to break into the hearts of these hardened Buddhist unbelievers. In fact, the whole time he was there, he was pessimistic. He had no optimism. He was there to do the job. He was, he was a true believer, loved God, but he was, he was really unconvinced that this was going to work because the people were so hard. By 1818, five years after their arrival in Burma, Adoniram had enough mastery of the language that he decided to build a little meeting house there's a street there in Rangoon, still exists today, where there are pagodas, these, these ornate little buildings, these little shack, little shacks, where you could stop in and there would be a teacher in there teaching you about some aspect of Buddhism. Well, he decided he was going to build himself a little pagoda, a little shack, where people could come and sit and talk and find out about this Christianity. And so the meeting house was open Sunday, April 4th, 1819, and soon many people were coming to inquire about the religion of the American teacher, that Adoniram had, uh, by this time, had no time to study. There were so many coming. Some were openly hostile, threatening his life. Most were curious, but remained unbelieving. But within a week, a visitor came who aroused Adoniram's highest hopes. His name was Mung Nao. He was 35-year-old, very poor. Day after day, the man came. First, he would quietly sit and listen at a distance. A couple of days into it, he began asking questions. A week later, Adoniram was thrilled to write this in his journal. He writes, I begin to think that the grace of God has reached this man's heart. 
He expresses sentiments of repentance from his sin and faith in the Savior. The substance of his profession is that from the darkness and uncleanness and sins of his whole life, he has found no other Savior but Jesus Christ. Nowhere else can he look for salvation, and therefore he proposes to adhere to Christ and worship him all his life long. And so after six years of ministry, God had blessed Adoniram and Nancy with their first precious soul. Mung now wrote a letter of, uh, of explanation to uh, Adoniram and the other missionaries there that on the basis of his faith, his renunciation of Buddhist teaching and his desire to be instructed in the word of God, he requested baptism. And so the next Lord's Day, he was taken to a pond near the mission house and was publicly baptized. Later, upon reflecting on the mercy of God on that day, Judson wrote, Oh, may it prove to be the beginning of a series of baptisms in the Burman Empire, which shall continue in uninterrupted succession to the end of time. Well, it was not to be. In the following year, three more would be baptized. And by the end of 1819, a small congregation of ten Burmese Christians were formed. After seven years of labor, God had blessed Burma with a real Burmese church. Their hearts were elated. But there was much work to do. He immediately set about to, to work on his translation, which he had to put off to minister to these people and lead them to Christ. And so now that the church was formed... His Burmese brothers were put to work reaching their own lost friends and family. Adoniram was free to go back to the most important work he had. The new disciples could spread the message of Jesus by word of mouth, but it was up to him to supply the message in the form of a complete printed gospel. By now, he had already translated Matthew and Ephesians and the book of Acts. By July of 1820, he completed the gospel and epistles of John and he knew that Burma needed the word of God in their own language if the work was ever to bear fruit in years to come after he had gone. If missionaries were going to be successful there, they had to have the Bible. And he was the only man who could do it. By July 12, 1823, ten years after they arrived, he had completely translated the entire New Testament in Burmese and had written a summary of the Old Testament. In the meantime, Nancy had become so ill that she needed to be sent home. Now, if you became ill, there are certain remedies they gave you. Most of them were probably the majority of the problem. One was called the blue pill. It was mercury. It was an innate, inert substance that contained mercury. They called it the blue pill. And uh, can you imagine taking mercury to get well? They thought it would. Obviously, they were wrong. But she became so ill, and this happened on, on several occasions, but this time it was so bad that they decided to send her home. Um, and Naram was going to go with her. She pleaded with him not to go uh, so that he could continue his work. So she went home and left him. Um, she was gone for two years. I mean, you don't just get on a plane Friday morning and end up on the other side of the planet in 13 hours. She was gone for two years. And while she was home... She was far from idle. As soon as she gained her strength back, she wrote a book about their ministry in Burma called An Account of the, the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire. And even with a title like that, it became a bestseller. And all over the eastern seaboard, people were buying up this book. All over the country, people were being moved by the Spirit to throw their lives into world missions. Many who could not go committed to supporting missions financially. The American missionary movement was beginning to gain traction as young men and women were being set out all over the globe to tell the nations about the glorious excellencies of Jesus Christ. Oh, the power of a life lived for God. One life lived for God. In ten years, they could only account for 18 converts and an incalculable amount of misery and hardship. But God took it and made that little spiritual garden bear fruit a hundredfold. Back in Burma, the struggles 
had really only begun. In December 1823, Nancy returned to Rangoon, much to the joy of her husband, who had not even heard from her in ten months. And then his personal suffering started in earnest. Their sweet reunion was short-lived. It became apparent that Britain was about to invade Burma. All foreigners were considered spies. On June 8, 1824, the authorities came and arrested Adoniram and took him to what the English called the death prison. He was thrown into a small bamboo cell with other white foreigners where he was bound in shackles in the darkness day and night with nearly nothing to eat. In the evenings, the guards would come and slide a pole through the chains on their feet and hoist them in the air upside down until their heads and shoulders were the only things touching the floor. It didn't take long before this kind of treatment caused Adoniram to be so bedraggled, it is said that even his closest friends could hardly have recognized him. In the meantime, Nancy was doing her best to convince the authorities that Adoniram was not English. She was not a, he's not a threat. He's not a spy. But to no avail, eventually she was able to secure him a little comfort. She was allowed actually into the prison yard. She had won the affections of the guards and the, the, um, the warden. And she was permitted to come into the prison yard and build for Adoniram a little hut separate from the main cell where he could come out into the light out of the pitch darkness and stench and be somewhat refreshed. There were days when she was allowed to spend up to two hours with him out there. But to make matters worse, as if matters could be getting any worse, in fact, she said death would be better than this. To make matters worse, Nancy discovered she was pregnant. I didn't tell you that she already lost one child on board ship. She had another child, Roger, their beloved little boy who lived for a while and grew strong and healthy and then died there at the mission. She was now pregnant for the third time. On January 26, 1825, a daughter was born whom she named Maria Elizabeth Butterworth Judson. That's a great name, isn't it? The original Mrs. Butterworth. At one point, Nancy became so sick herself that she could no longer nurse the baby. She was sick with dysentery, and dehydration, she dried up, she could no longer nurse. She begged the prison warden to allow Adoniram to take the baby into the local village to find someone who could nurse her child. Amazingly, he agreed. As long as Adoniram would agree to keep his shackles on, they would let him carry the baby and hobble through the village trying to find a woman who would nurse their baby. And there were a few women who, by God's providence, were gracious in that way and kept the baby alive. Finally, on November 4th, a message came to Nancy from the governor to tell her that an order had been given for Adoniram's release. He was needed as a translator because there was no one else who knew both English and Burmese. He was needed as a translator to come broker peace with Britain because they were at war and Burmese was, Burma was losing badly. And so he came and he helped broker peace peace. The British Navy then took Adoniram and Nancy to safety and treated them like royalty. Nancy said it was like we died and went to heaven. They were able to live in the comfort of a new house and for a time with their beautiful daughter Maria. The time together was short, however, because the British government required Adoniram's services and many other uh, needs to translate, so he left Nancy and the baby healthy and happy and hoped to be gone for no more than a few short weeks, but the trip got extended longer and longer. And letters quit coming. Correspondence that was coming was saying that she had gotten sick, but she regained and revived and was well again. And then one day, November 18, 26, an officer came to him with a letter saying, I'm sorry to inform you of the death of your child. That's what the officer said when he handed him the letter, had a black seal on it, handed it to him and said, Mr. Judson, I'm sorry to inform you about the death of your child. Well, he took the letter, aware that little Maria had been sick on and off and was half expecting that someday he would receive the news of her death. It's not uncommon in those days and in that place. But at least his dear Nancy was spared. 
But what he discovered in the letter was far more devastating than he could ever have prepared himself for. This is what it said. My dear sir, to one who has suffered so much with such exemplary fortitude, there needs but little preface to tell a tale of distress. It were cruel indeed to torture you with doubt and suspense. So to sum up the unhappy tidings in a few words, Mrs. Judson is no more. It was not his daughter who had died. It was his precious wife. She had been dead a full month before he had gotten word. The pain was almost too much to bear. Six months later, little Maria followed her mother in death. At this point, Adoniram fell into a deep despair. He bore the death camp and the torturous abuse at the prison very well. But the loss of his wife and precious daughter seemed too much. Soon he distanced himself from the other missionaries. On the first anniversary of Nancy's death, he built a little hut in the jungle and had a grave dug next to it where he sat day after day longing for death, dangling his feet in the grave. He began reading the mystics, thinking that self-deprivation would somehow bring him close to the God he felt he lost, but it didn't work. He blamed himself for the deaths of all those who were closest to him, concluding that God was punishing him for his pride, for seeking to make a name for himself by becoming the first ever missionary from America. He began destroying everything he possessed that served to exalt his name. The letters from dignitaries, the honors, he publicly renounced his doctor of divinity. He gave away all his private wealth to the Baptist board. Once his sister wrote to him asking for a signature on a legal document, but he refused until she could demonstrate legally that she had destroyed all his personal letters to her. He didn't want it becoming a book about him. He wrote in a letter back to his sister and, and Nancy's family. He said, God is to me a great unknown. I believe him, but I Find him not. But out of this, beloved, came an amazing harvest of souls. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 reads, Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro, weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Eventually, by the mercy of God, the melancholy lifted. He got word that his youngest, his younger brother had died. When he left, his, un, his brother was an unbeliever and remained an unbeliever through his entire ministry. He'd been an unbeliever all his life, but just before he died, there was... Significant evidence that he had placed his faith in Christ and was trusting him alone for salvation. And this did something to him. It helped bring Adoniram back to life again. And when he returned to the mission, it was 1830. By now, many more missionaries had joined the effort. Tracts were being printed and distributed. His Burmese translation of the Bible was being reprinted and distributed. And suddenly the Spirit of God, as it were, came down and swept through Burma and the surrounding countries with the message of Christ. Whereas before, hardly anyone wanted to hear what he had to say. Now people were coming from all over just to receive a track and to hear the Word of God. And one time traveling down river, stopping at village after village, doing what ministry he could, he wrote in his journal, I went ashore entered into conversation with several, and gave away a dozen of the old tracts. And it was amusing and gratifying to see the groups of boatmen about sunset employed and reading and listening to the truth. And some would be constantly coming to our boat for a track. I could have given away a hundred, he said. But he was committed to only giving them to people who asked for them. And when he pushed out in a little boat to get some sleep and kind of get away from the people... In the middle of the night, they would hear people on the shore saying, Teacher, are you asleep? We want a writing to get by heart. There was a spirit of inquiry that is spreading everywhere through the whole length and breadth of the land. Although the missionaries never gave any tracts without being asked for, they found themselves giving away hundreds every day. 
On March 4th, he wrote that during the festival, the Buddhist festival that was happening at the time, he had distributed nearly 10,000 tracts to people who asked. And he wrote, I presume there have been 6,000 applications at the house. 6,000 people who came knocking on his door. You talk about your email box being filled. 6,000 people came knocking at the door. Some come two or three months' journey, two or three months' journey from the borders of Siam and China, saying, Sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. Others said, Sir, we have seen writings that tell us about an eternal God. Are you a man that gives away such writings? If so, pray, give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. Others came from the interior of the country where the name of Jesus is little known, saying, Are you the Jesus Christ man? Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. It's taken Adoniram and Nancy nearly 10 years to baptize 18 converts. But in the first five years since the war, Adoniram was to report in a few months 242 natives had been baptized, plus 113 foreigners. From the beginning of 1831, therefore, the total number of baptized stood at 373, of which 217 had been made in this one year. You see, beloved, Jesus was right. John 12:24 Truly truly I say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains alone but if it dies it bears much fruit The reason Adoniram Judson was such a, a fruitful minister of Christ in Burma was because he was able to say with the apostle Paul I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course with the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify solemnly of the grace of God. The story doesn't end there. I don't have time to really tell you anymore, except that he remarried. This young lady who he called his blue-eyed beauty, who was the wife of, of a man who came to help with the mission and he died. They became good friends and were married. They had quite a number of children. Most of them lived. And she became gravely ill. It was time to take her to America, hope, hoping that to save her life. He actually went with her, having planned never to return to, to America. But he went for her sake. They almost made it. She died just before they reached America. When he got to America, he looked for a an author, a writer who would write her story. And so he met a, a very young lady named Emily Chubbuck. Her pen name was Fanny Foster. She was nearly half his age. And their relationship was a big scandal. And he didn't care. He loved her. She loved him. They were both fiercely devoted to the gospel. And she wanted to go. And so they returned and had fruitful years of ministry until he became gravely ill. And the typical solution to becoming ill was take a voyage, get on board ship. And it worked. A lot of times it worked. They got him away from land and they got well uh, through the story. It probably happened ten times recorded in his book. And so he got on board ship. She wanted to come with him and he, he suspected he wasn't going to make it and told her to stay. There wasn't even a believer on board except the one man from the mission who went with him. He suffered greatly on board ship. Until finally, April 12, 1850, 4.15, Friday afternoon, and Niram Judson left this world to be with the Lord that he had so faithfully served. There were no believers on board the ship with him. There's no Christian service, no prayers. That evening, the larboard port was open. The coffin slid through the port into the depths, and he was gone. There's no celebration on earth, but oh, what a burst of joy there must have been in heaven when Adoniram Judson arrived. Talk about well done. Well done. And so the story of Adoniram Judson is only one of thousands of stories like 
his, of faithful men and women who heard the Lord's command to go into all the world and to make disciples of every nation. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if there's anyone here, anyone hearing my voice today who will say, count me in. I want to go. Father, there are many who are on the field today who are not counting their lives as as worth anything to themselves. They are living for the glory of their beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. And some of them today will die with that holy ambition pulsing through their veins. I pray, Father, that you would raise up some from this congregation. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Oh, Father, raise them up. Perhaps even some from our team in the Ukraine today who will say, I want to go, and I want to stay. And I may never come back, but I want to go. No, Father, I pray that you would do what you did for Adoniram and provide every means of support and encouragement. And send him, send them for your great glory and for their own eternal joy, we pray in Jesus' name.